Hello, this is David, and thank you for all the continued support and interest that you've shown in the Career Deconstructed podcast. It really means a lot. I'm just jumping in right now to tell you that if you're interested in this conversation or any going forward, you can now go to YouTube and watch it. The video is there of me and Jongmin talking about this. So that's all I wanted to say. Hope you continue enjoying Career Deconstructed podcast. I found it fascinating how important gender and identity has become in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I taught a group of visiting uh, scholars from Wellesley College uh, last year, and gender, I, could, I could feel that gender and identity was so important to them when looking at things. And so I'm just curious, was your, does your research predate that? Were you interested in this field before this seemingly big movement towards that, or did they come at the same time? Or? It was totally coincidental. I, when I started my master's degree mm. in mid-2000, gender issue was not a big deal in South Korea. Mm. And my, overall, the identity politics, identity issues were not very uh, discussed as much as uh, we, I, I had hoped. Mm. But suddenly, for some reasons, it came big issue, especially after the rise of conservative male-oriented websites like uh, Ilbeth mm. or um, a lot of other similar <laughs> online communities. And then with, I mean, feminist response to the uh, male-centric communities. And uh, yeah, so I think, I mean, when I started my research about straight Korean female fandom about mm. uh, boys' love or fanfic culture, it was not predictable that my research would get highlighted mm. as much as now. And then for some reasons, yeah, it was uh, attracting more readership and then more uh, uh, scholar interest in recent years and it is definitely related to the popularity of the similar cultures over the I mean all over the world and not only in Korea and East Asia but also in other Western cultures as you may know in mm-hmm. the United States and in other Western countries there is um, equivalent female fandom called slash fiction. So I think all of this suddenly kind of detonated mm-hmm. <laughs> with the rise of female rights and the female visibility in multiple areas. So yeah, I didn't see this coming. I didn't expect this at all. And then, yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> What was it that got you into it? You said you did your master's in the mid-2000s. You start looking into it. What was it for you that pushed you in that direction, Jongmin? Was there a specific incident or was it personal? Was it the academic uh, literature? About this specific area or about the reason why I started master's? 
program no the specific area uh, not so much the masters mm. in itself that's a, that's another story i guess but <laughs> yeah. what what why did you choose this particular area at that time when as you say not many other people were doing it so what made you do it was there anything or it is definitely personal so before the masters program i worked at a company and at the time i was totally devastated because it was I mean, just like all other people <laughs> who feel that just working in a big company is not their job. I also felt the same way. I felt that I was being consumed. Like I woke up at 5.30 and then go to work and then came home really late. And then at some point I realized I want to focus on myself and mm. then pursuing a master's degree was one of the ways to escape that reality and then to um, explore myself. So this is related to the reason why I study uh, women. So since I decided to examine myself, I had to study about me, women in their 20s, so young women overall. So at the time I, Fan, fan culture was not my main area in master's program at the time. I just um, studied a cable network channel named mm -hmm. Own Style. I'm not sure if it's still around. I think so. And then, yeah, and then I studied a channel about why it is popular and why they started targeting young women who were considered less visible and less powerful in South Korea. And then at the time, I realized that there is this um, emerging power of young women as a consumer as, mm -hmm. and as a citizen. And then when I decided to pursue a doctorate degree, that kind of became more specific about the fandom of female young women, but they are, they are still connected mm -hmm. because with that background about young women that I examined and unpacked in my master's thesis, I could be more focused on the fanfic culture, which that, I mean, which I enjoyed a lot and mm. then which was on the rise at the moment. So it was, yeah, it started from me, <laughs> my friends and uh, my culture, I mean, the pop culture that I enjoyed as a teenager and I mean, reading fanfic and writing fanfic mm. and uh, being a fan of this first generation of K-pop idols like H.O.T. And then in the 20s, with the financial power, I was able to consume more and I was able to build some kind of power as an mm. economic consumer in the market. So. I, Hopefully this answers your question about why I started working on this specific area. No, it does perfectly. And I, I have a million more questions, obviously, but oh, sure. I'm, I've always tried to understand South Korean society before I arrived, because you can read about something, but that never really brings it to life. And um, these days in South Korea, online and offline, gender is a huge topic. We've seen the rise of uh, the Me Too movement. Kapjil has become a thing. Um, feminism, anti-feminism. And this is all, it has deep historical roots, but it's also a fairly modern phenomenon. In the mid-2000s, Jongmin, 
what was Korean society like for you as a young woman in a big company? As I understand it, it was a lot more sort of aggressive then, verbally, physically. It was a little bit less polite. But what was your experience like? Surprisingly, at the moment, the gender politics and gender discrimination was less visible. But that doesn't necessarily mean that women were not discriminated. Sure. Does this make sense to you? Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Yeah. So I was still discriminated at school and in a company and mm. even by my family and my friends. So the gender discrimination against women always existed. But it was an interesting moment that it was not that disco discoverable because it was a time that we wanted to be um, more progressive and we were ready to embracing this global culture yeah. and we want we want to look good as a society to others so at the moment and also especially under the more progressive government at the moment i sure. think it, it also functioned in a really positive in a very positive way so even so, even though still we were, I mean, women were discriminated, the society was working on something as a whole. And then most importantly, younger men who are currently called as Idenam did not know that, did not recognize the rising power of young women. They didn't consider their counterpart mm. would be appearing that shoes at the moment. So they still considered young women as, they underestimated young women. So even mm. though they wanted to respect, they decided to respect or they seemed to respect women, they still thought that, oh, women are below us. So we can try, but there is still this very rigid hierarchy. Mm -hmm. But with different government and with different members, I mean, female members who wanted to more, wanted to have more visibility in politics and who wanted to express themselves more and who already have became a huge consumer group in the market. Finally, these men realized that mm. there is, I mean, these women are not ignorable anymore. I think that's the moment men when men started forming their own exclusive uh, uh, exclusive culture, mm -hmm. which is only available to them, and their attempt to kind of marginalize women online kind of started in the late 2000s, and it became bigger and bigger and bigger with kind of invisible support of conservative government at the moment, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. could realize, oh, there are a lot of men who feel the same way. And then we are here and then we can gather power and then we can work to isolate this woman again. Yeah. But no, I mean, that's what was happening in the early 2010s. 
but women became bigger. I mean, the powerful women, the visibility of women became bigger and bigger and more uh, empowered. More, they were more empowered. And at the time, women decided to fight back. Mm. And then in the 2010s, I mean 2010s, the gender politics became more visible. So this is how I historicized gender mm -hmm. politics. But you should definitely listen to other scholars, uh, such as Jin Su Kim, whom I can um, refer to you later, who mm -hmm. is more a professional in this area. So this is a very rough version. Sure, no, I, I appreciate it and, and the recommendations as well. Um, when I was here in the early 2000s, I, I'll never forget, I used to work with a, a fairly high-ranking woman. Um, she worked in insurance and she used to take me down into Gwangamun to the street because she wanted to mm -hmm. smoke. Mm -hmm. um, but when we would go down there and smoke on the street, I have it, I've thankfully since quit, but she would tell me, David, if anybody comes up to us, please pretend that I'm Japanese. Because if I'm seen smoking on the street as a woman, people will be angry. And she told me that she'd been, you know, mm -hmm. shouted at and physically threatened for sort of being out and smoking in public. Mm -hmm. And it really opened my eyes to what that experience might have been. Now, just listening to you, Jungmin, and you sort of said the uh, the rise of women that could no longer be ignored. They'd perhaps been underestimated. They now had economic power. Is the word, for example, patriarchy gets used quite a lot and maybe not always accurately, but and I know you've already said that you come at this from and your focus is on K-pop and, and we will get there. But was that in South Korea? Is that is that Confucianism, that sort of deep rooted patriarchy where it's kind of this systemic thing or was it just individual bad actors or just roughly what do you think were the or what do you think were some of the influences that produced that oppressive environment? Yeah, of course, the, 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 the origin of the current version of patriarchy stems from Confucianism. There was, as you know, from China, mm. which was imported during the Joseon dynasty. It is deeply male-oriented because Confucianism considers that having a son to succeed the family most important. So dollars are considered supporting family members and they, I mean, women, women are the secondary uh, beings. So based on Confucianism, patriarchy or heteronormativity kind of has been dominating the entire Korean society. And every individual has been growing up in such a culture. I mean, me, who has been studying gender politics since um, my college education, still cannot say that I am free from Confucianism because it's in me, because mm. I, my parents are so patriarchal and then my teachers and my friends and me, it's just take for, take, it has been taken for granted. 
So it's something that is very systemic. It's individual. Mm. It's societal and culture, economy, and politics. And every sector of Korean society has been living with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, this equally applies to China and Japan and probably other um, Southeast Asian cultures. But I, I can for sure say that China and Japan and Korea are most um, patriarchal mm-hmm. uh, societies among others, among Asian countries. The way, um, yeah, yeah, and the way that manifests. Sometimes some of my international students, Jungmin, don't understand it. That, of course, every Korean experience is different. There's no one Korean. It's really you know sabasa, but it's not uncommon. For example, for a mother to be referred to by their children's name, so they might be Donghyeon Omma. or mm. juhi omma they wouldn't even have a name they'd just be the mother of that child and that was their exactly. their role so not even an indiv- an individual kind of, mm-hmm. and that's a very interesting thing to comprehend i think how that would manifest in day-to-day life mm-hmm. it's it's every everywhere <laughs> So I cannot find any single area in which patriarchy is not embedded. Mm, yeah, so it's everywhere. I mean, how Korean people wear, how Korean people eat, how Korean people call each other—it's just everywhere. Mm. Which makes it fascinating. One of the reasons why I'm I'm interested to talk to you, and I hope we get to this as the conversation unfolds. How? such a very patriarchal and systemically oppressive society is then associated in the 21st century with k-pop with these ideas of gender fluidity and gender and how all that plays together because it seems like they would be worlds apart but in the academic literature and real line online conversations they're really close together um you've Your 2019 book, Jungmin, um, straight Korean female fans and their gay fantasies, and and your upcoming one, the Invisibility Dilemma, queer media cultures and voices in contemporary South Korea. Both of these go from not just a gender perspective, but towards let's say uh, LGBT issues and queer culture. And so, I I understand that your focus is this as it. Manifests and applies in K-pop and in in popular culture, rather than from a sociological perspective. But I just want to sort of perhaps try to talk about these LGBT LGBT issues in a in a Korean context, um, because growing up in the United Kingdom, for me there were LGBT people all over society in music, on television, in film, um, and. They weren't there because they were necessarily gay. They were there because they were the top at their field. Whether it was sort of George Michael, Freddie Mercury, Stephen Fry, Samantha Fox, they were they were professionals, really good at it, and their sexuality was almost secondary. Um, and so, growing up, I I naturally accepted that. I it, it didn't feel progressive to me to accept LGBT rights, or you know, it, it just happened. It was a given, but in South Korea, things are a bit different. There is no gay marriage in South Korea. Anti-discrimination yeah. laws are very difficult. They still haven't passed. How do you understand 
LGBT issues in a Korean context? Like, where are they right now? How are they similar or different to uh, North America or Western Europe? It's it's a really big question. <laughs> I I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I am limited um, to answer. Again, there are much more scholars and activists who can answer this question much better. I will do my best. Um, so, I mean, as you have discovered the the environment and social milieu that you were, I mean, um, you are familiar with in mm -hmm. the UK are not easily found in South Korea. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to generalize that it's a difference between uh, West culture, Western culture and the non-Western culture. It's just a different region and different culture, different history. So like even in Europe, you are all different. You have uh, specificities, right? Just like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So in South Korea, we were not, still are not, familiar with queerness and queer people and it's not changing quickly it the the first um the first public debate about queer issues started i would say in the in the early, in the late 80s, or in the early 90s, when there was, um, uh, what's, I forgot the type, a name of the, the sudden spread of HIV in mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. there, there is this term that <laughs> described a historical incident, I forgot it. So in a news, news show, the the anchor said, oh, they are in the United States, people are getting HIV because of gay people and they can associate the gayness with HIV. And then the anchor said, in Korea, we don't have to worry because we do not have any gay people. That was what <laughs> the anchor said mm. in uh, either in late, late 80s or in the early 90s. So this example kind of encapsulates how ignorant Korean society was of queer issues. But this does not mean that there were not queer people at all. They have been always there and historically we can find a lot of evidence that queer lives did exist in yep. uh, many dynasties, even kings mm -hmm. and even queens and even princesses. So there are multiple reasons why modern Korean society was, is so close to and so conservative toward gayness. So multiple reasons, for example, the, the strong Confucianism and then Christianity that was mm -hmm. imported um, with the import of Western cultures, and then uh, military uh, authoritarianism right. that highly focused on fostering 
strong masculinity. So all of this combined, Korean people kind of believe that queerness is a bad thing and that we do not have queer people. And then most of Korean people actually did not know what queer or what gay or what lesbian, what, what, what that is at all. Mm. So transgender and gayness were interchangeably used even in the early 90s and even up to the um, 2000 when Hong Seok-chan and Hari Su came out. Mm -hmm. Some news shows used the word like gay for transgender or transgender for gay people. But now we can see that after two decades, it's a different situation. Yeah. We can see that queer issues are being discussed even in the presidential debate, mm -hmm. even though it was not a positive um, direction. But I think the fact that it is now visibly being debated itself means that there have been some transitions mm. and then something is rapidly changing. So this is where I get usually backlash because we, queer activists still find Korean society very conservative. I do agree. I do agree that mm. Korean society is very conservative, but I want to look at these small changes, these small transitions that we have been able to discover. I mean, just compared to 2000 when Hong Seok-chan came out, but now we see him appearing in TV shows a lot. Yep. And some people, even though not A-listers or probably C-listers mm -hmm. or very minor celebrities come out and they are not blacklisted like Hong Seok-chung was in yep. 2000. So even, but here, one thing I want to point out is that there is a gap between pop culture areas and cultural areas and political and economic areas. Because we have Hong Seok-chan, Hari Su, and other minor um, openly queer celebrities, mm -hmm. but we do not have a, a Congress person who came out. I mm -hmm. mean, there were some people who ran for, uh, run, ran for the, the election yep. I mean, in multiple levels, but they all failed. And we do not have an, in came out, I mean, openly queer CEOs mm -hmm. like Tim Cook, right? Mm -hmm. right. So there's this huge discrepancy is mm. something that uh, kind of drags people um, toward this idea that we are still so behind, which is true, but it, despite acknowledging the discrepancy despite acknowledging the deeply rooted conservativeness and probably uh, new conservatism in society my goal is that to spot these changes mm. so when you mentioned how does how is this conservative society able to produce queerness in k-pop which is spreading all over the world mm. One thing that I want to highlight is that K-pop queerness or a queerness, large queerness that I uh, coined in my paper is a minor, minor, minor part of K-pop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> For, unfortunately. 
it's still very minor. As you can see, still, you can see a lot of K-pop idols are forced to perform very stereotypical images of gender roles. Yeah. So that's still majority of K-pop idols who perform typical gender roles. That's the thing. I mean, mm. that's, that's a fact that I cannot refute at all. But here, somewhere, I can see something is burgeoning. Mm -hmm. And then my goal is to shed on light, shed light on this, mm -hmm. and then keep talking about it again and again and again. So other people can see this and other people can discover, oh, there's something else which is not that we are familiar with. And that way, probably we recognize more different or uncomfortable, eventually queer practices, and we consider it less weird. And at some point, probably part of our culture, in that way, queerness is considered part of our Korean society. But this is where I believe how K-pop culture, I mean, the potential of K-pop culture in a way, how it, in a way it could change. I wouldn't use the word change because it's, a, it's too big. Mm. How K-pop could contribute to making Korean society queerer mm -hmm. <laughs> or more diverse. Because in real life, we, do, we are not able to find that much queerness because people are, I mean, queer people are discouraged to come out mm -hmm. and then people are discouraged to uh, express their queer identity. Mm -hmm. It is still severely limited, but in cultural area, it's possible. We do not consider G-Dragon or Amber that weird because it's culture, it's pop culture, it's trendy. So by being constantly exposed to the kind of anti-straight, anti-conservative culture, we find that, okay, it's not actually bad. For example, my father, who used to be so um, conservative and so opposed to my study about queer issues. He was, mm. so in 2010, I guess it's 2010, there was a, this TV show named Life is Beautiful in which two gay men made an appearance. It was a huge controversy at the moment. Mm -hmm. And my father said, oh, they are dirty. Mm. Like, I mean, that's how typical Korean men in their 60s and 70s would respond to uh, queerness at the moment. But now my father th believes that it's their life. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Mm -hmm. So I do not think that it's okay for him to not care because he should care about that. But I can see some changes. He found queerness dirty, but now he at least does not think it's dirty. Yeah. So... I think that's the power of media because by having him exposed to queer culture, even at the level of media, mm. he is slowly changing. It's happening to 
many people. I mean, there is this solid group, so-called Taegukibude, who wouldn't probably never change, mm -hmm. <laughs> or um, very conservative uh, church groups who mm -hmm. always demonstrate to disrupt queer festival. They might not change, but other people, like 70% of Korean people are slowly, very slowly changing. And there is some differences, like my father's generation, of course, mm. changing. Um, I mean, they are behind, but changing slowly. But younger generations, like 20s and 30s, they are totally different yep. demographics from my father's generation. So I have been interviewing people in their 20s and 30s, and I can see that they are totally different. The so-called NZ generation in South Korea, like mm -hmm. millennials and generation Zers, they do not, they are not afraid of coming out. Not all of them, but mostly. Mm -hmm. And most of my interviews told me that they have already came out and their friends were okay. If they their friends did not like their coming out, they wouldn't care because then that proves that they are not their true friend. Mm -hmm. So they came out, most of them came out. Depending on the cases, like more than half of them came out to their parents and their mm -hmm. family. So 10 years ago, I interviewed uh, 10 gay people for my research. At the time, it was so hard to find gay interviews because mm -hmm. my friends who got asked to um, introduce any gay people to me told me that they do not know any gay people or their friends didn't want to be interviewed. Mm. So I struggled several months to find um, gay, potential gay interviews, but now it's so, so it became so easier than mm. the time because at this moment, younger generations do not care about having an interview with an academic, having an interview with other people about their identity. They are ready to share their stories because they know that it's important. And then mm. they know that their stories are being heard than their previous generations. So they are definitely ambivalent. They know that the society is not changing as much as they want, and they know that their parents are still conservative, mm. but they are witnessing some changes, which is contributing them to come out more and then to share their voices with uh, scholars like me. I'm sorry it was a long answer. <laughs> no, please don't apologize for the long answers. I, I find it fascinating listening to you, Jungmin. And um, you mentioned the, the television announcer in the late 80s saying that there are no gay people in, in South Korea is sort of this kind of systemic approach to it. And it reminded me when I first arrived in 2005, my kind of SK flip phone, it was a silver one. Um, it, it had a built-in dictionary. And if you looked up sort of AIDS, it said in Korean, the gay plague. That's mm -hmm. what it said in the dictionary on the SK phone. So you can see that those kind of attitudes were kind of inbuilt into society, in the technology, in the media. And now something like that just doesn't fly. And I completely agree with you that, you know, I... I spend a lot of time with young men and women in their 20s at these universities teaching them and 
LGBT issues aren't really that controversial, I would say, mm -hmm. in South Korea at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's a general acceptance that people are people and you let them be. And, you know, uh, it's it, it's slowly become, well, it's become accepted. Obviously, it's not fast enough for some people. There needs to be legal protections mm -hmm. uh, and there needs to be greater, let's say, support and allyship from those in power. Um, but I'm inclined to agree with you and suggest that, yeah, in in the last 20 years, Korea has changed dramatically in this. And uh, if we know something about South Korea, that's what it does. It democratizes really quickly and mm -hmm. then women's rights and then these LGBT rights. Just one question, because you spoke about your dad and we will move on, but I just want to unpack this a little bit more. Sometimes I will ask my young 20-year-old students who have very open attitudes towards LGBT issues and their, and their grandparents don't. So I ask them, well, why is that? Is that because you're a better person than your grandparents? Or is that because your grand... What do you think, Jongmin, is the catalyst for this change over the last two decades in South Korea? Is it exposure in the media? Is it globalization? Is it greater awareness of human rights? Um, what is it that is slowly making South Korea more accepting of these uh, LGBT issues, do you think? A lot of factors, as you know. Yeah. So many factors combined, I cannot pinpoint. Uh, one reason, obviously, I mean, for uh, any societal changes, we have to um, see all the backgrounds that uh, contribute to making the changes. Uh, just to name a few, I want to acknowledge first the constant effort and attempt of feminist and LGBTQ plus activists who have mm. been working so hard since early 90s. So in the early mm. 90s, the early 90s is the very crucial moment for South Korean society. As you know, it is a time when finally the president, democratic presidential election took place. Yeah. And I mean, there are some, there were some trials and errors during the time, but it is the definite time the Korean society rapidly started changing in terms of uh, politics and economy. So that is a moment when women's rights movements and LGBTQ plus movements slowly began. There was a moment in a lot of universities, queer communities formed and feminist activist group have formed. So they kind of laid the foundation for a lot of changes which mm. are happening now. So I have to um, point it out first. And with that, although the politicians and the politics look, they are lagging way behind, I want to say that they have changes a little bit. It is true. I could say they are talking about queer issues now. They are talking yeah. about women's rights issues more than ever. Mm. And women's rights became one of the important issues when they have political debate. So they have changes as well. And there have been some uh, systemic support 
support for women, but not as much as for um, LGBTQ lives yet. Mm. And also economists, in the market, women are now big consumers mm. and the market is seeing that progressive consumers, regardless of their sexual identity or sexual identity, sexual orientation are important because they know that this progressive and more um, democrat, I mean, politically liberal consumers are all, are uh, aware of a political correctness. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So they care about this um, politically aware consumers so that sometimes they want to move ahead like for example uh, a lot of cable television not a lot of but so several cable televisions like J jtbc mm. and tvn started airing tv shows including lgbtq plus characters recently for example mine this year it was it was so so um it was pretty good, um, I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, compared to previous shows, it was amazing, right? Mm. I mean, actually, actually, I really liked it. It was not a gay protagonist. It was a lesbian protagonist because yeah. before 2010s, it was usually a gay protagonist who got more uh, mm. spotlighted. And then other than mine, there are several TV shows that included queer characters. So these... Economy, I mean, mark, marketing strategies are kind of proving that they are going ahead because they know that TV watchers and movie spectators are taking care of queer lives and women's, I mean, female rights. So they want to hold this potential TV viewership, potential uh, movie spectatorship. But this is definitely economic changes, yeah. I mean, structural changes. So, yeah. And then also I can, I have to uh, highlight the influence of transnational media culture and not just media culture, transnational culture. In since the, since, I mean, South Korean people have always consumed Western media mm -hmm. ever since it uh, started importing foreign cultures. But it is the late 90s when the United States and when other Western cultures like UK or France also started including more queer characters. I mean, I know that you are, you were, uh, you uh, grew up with queer cultures all over the place and you take it you took it for granted mm. but i think it was 80s and 90s when media actively included queer characters in their uh, representations mm -hmm. like for example in the united states in the united states like the Ellen DeGeneres and um, Will and Great. I mean, there were sporadic attempts before then, of course, but more meaningful mainstreaming uh, marketing strategies to include queer cultures, I think it started in early 90s, in mm -hmm. all, 
uh, late nineties. So that kind of dovetailed uh, with the development of uh, more TV channels in South Korea, the uh, establishment of cable industries and the spread of internet culture so that Korean people could download yep. British TV shows and um, Hollywood movies. So that the uh, impact of Western culture or mass media culture definitely contributed to democratizing or uh, more uh, uh, changing the uh, how people think about queer lives uh, at this moment. It's I I completely agree with all of that, and you know it makes me think when I grew up seeing lots of LGBT representation in my teens in, in what I was watching that I didn't actually have to work hard to accept it. And so therefore I try to empathize with people that do actually have to go through that process. I, I feel, I guess, somewhat lucky. And when you talk about the economics of this, it's, I've always been struck trying to answer the question is like, can you do a good thing for a bad reason? If this is just being done for companies to earn money, you know, if this is just being done to be profitable, how do we feel about that? But and so from that, I guess we should turn on to K-pop and some of your research, Jungmin, because mm -hmm. we've taken a bit of time to get here. But, you know, you apply all of these ideas, which you've explained in a really clear way, you apply them into K-pop and how they're playing off each other. Um, I, I just want to read one of these bits from one of your papers, and you suggest the following in your research. Academic discussions about gender and sexuality in K-pop have been significantly weighted toward the idea of soft masculinity regarding male performers, thereby muffling other possible interpretations. And I, I find this really straightforward and I agree with it because a lot of stereotypical associations of K-pop would be with this soft masculinity. People might have very derogatory negative responses to it other people have very positive embracing responses mm -hmm. to it but it's something a, a stereotype i think that many people associate with a lot of k-pop is this soft masculinity i wonder can you try to explain what soft masculinity is how it manifests in k-pop is it is it just a hairstyle is it is it something more than that um does it speak of an othering or orientalism from the West, sort of making the, the Korean men feminine? What is soft masculinity, Jung Min? How does it manifest in this K-pop context, please? Mm -hmm. So soft masculinity manifests itself in multiple ways, including physical appearance and, for example, people wouldn't consider Shin Sung-il, the, mm. the old actor, or even Chang Dong-gun right. having soft masculinity. But now people think that, of course, G-Dragon or Juno, who is now immensely popular from yeah. the successful TV show, having soft masculinity. So there is this difference between traditionally, conventionally good-looking 
um, male celebrities mm. and currently popular male celebrities who do not have that um, traits like big or big eyes or more a strong lined face lines mm -hmm. and more like manny or masculine i i hate to use the word manny or right. but i mean in a traditional way mm -hmm. yeah so so physical appearance definitely contributes to uh what uh, uh what soft masculinity is and also fashion style is very important because soft masculinity is clearly associated with metrosexual culture that uh, actually came from Western cultures, mm. meaning spending time, energy, money for making a better fashion style or a better physical appearance, like buying more cosmetic items mm. or buying more fancy uh, outfits. So even if someone has soft masculinity, soft, soft masculinity-ish uh, uh, I mean, face or physical appearance, mm -hmm. and he does not care about his fashion style, he would be considered as having soft masculinity because fashion style is a big, huge component of making someone having, possessing soft masculinity. And also here, I want to add personal mm. personality. Personality, uh, I mean, a man who has more sweet or more kind, more personable personality is mm. considered having soft masculinity. So all of this is actually in strong contrast to patriarchal being mm -hmm. like my father who has strong face line who does not care about his fashion style at all sorry my father <laughs> and uh, he won't care <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like he, he, he wouldn't care because he is he's not a man of soft masculinity mm -hmm. and also whose personality is not sweet or kind or sense. so those father generation believes that being strong being manly man mm. and being charismatic is most important but women or other queer identities find it a little bit troubling because that strong masculinity mm. works to oppress their lives I mean, mm -hmm. literally lives in real life. So in the, I mean, in the 90s, when Korean society rapidly started began changing, this woman decided to express different kinds of desires for a new type of man. And that's how soft masculinity um, the concept of soft masculinity was born. So this actually, so my whole entire book kind of historicizes mm -hmm. how this started. So this woman uh, influenced by being, by being influenced, um, being influenced by Japanese culture, like Yaoi, which is another yeah. version of boys love, making romantic stories between two men. 
regardless of their uh, actual sexuality in mediated words or in real life. So this woman kind of imagined of a new type of masculinity that they could enjoy. So, so yeah. soft masculinity is the is a female creation to release themselves from oppression. I cannot say that because oh, okay. soft masculinity, I mean, the word, the term itself mm. began with the rise of female fandom, female fanfic culture, then mm -hmm. for sure there's this colorful coins the word by after observing this fan culture. But I believe soft, the traits that characterizes of masculinity that I just described have always existed, but they, that characters were not just considered strong, considered um, valuable. Mm. So they were muffled, I would say. But these women started expressing their desires for other types of men and then there were already this soft masculinity culture and mm. then this started being on the rise with the help of the power cultural power over this woman so and can i ask one more that makes perfect sense sure. sorry to jump in jong min mm -hmm. but that all makes perfect sense and i just want to try to clarify soft masculinity is not associated with non-heterosexual attitudes. Soft masculinity is still heterosexual, is it? Or does it border? How does that work? That's my question. I believe, I believe every man has soft masculinity. Yeah, depending on mm. <laughs> how much, I mean, to different I mean, to varying degrees. But for some people, strong masculinity manifests more. And for others, soft masculinity uh, look more uh, visible. Mm. But the way how soft masculinity was used in Korean pop culture is that, and in societies, that soft masculinity was connected to gayness because gay, gay people or worse, they are considered lacking masculinity. That's why they do not love women. Mm -hmm. They are not strong enough. They are not many men. So they cannot love women. So they love men. But this is very, I mean, obviously wrong, right? And then mm -hmm. it's obviously not true. But this is how gayness and soft masculinity was connected so that's how gayness was used actually in fanfic culture and boys love culture so this women fan of fanfics or fan of yaoi or fan of slash culture in western mm. cultures to them soft masculinity is one way to express their new aspirations for the male body and the male um, identity. And then they didn't want to associate that with heterosexual men because mm -hmm. heterosexual men may threaten them emotionally and physically. So they found a new other types of men who will would not threaten them. So that's 
a gay man and then this I know this is a really weird logic mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is the point in which fans of fanfics and gay activists or uh, queer activists scholars debate because right. this fanfic culture can otherwise or marginalize gayness I think now would be a really good time because I wanted to ask you about um, what other, what soft masculinity might be muffling, as you suggested. But because you've mentioned fanfic and boys love yaoi and slash, I think we just need to unpack what that is because I only, it was only in the last few years that I discovered what that was and had to explore it for Hallyu and things like that. And there might be many people out there not quite sure what it is but this is this kind of fanfic thing is what drives a lot of this ideas i think looking at your research so jungmin what is what is fanfic or yaoi or slash i'm sometimes not even sure of the differences between these words or how to use them correctly mm -hmm. so it would need <laughs> a book chapter to explain all of this <laughs> So yeah. listeners, if you're curious, please read my book, chapter one about the uh, chapter, oh, introduction and chapter one. So very it, briefly, the basic idea about fan fiction and yaoi or boys love and uh, slash culture is that you make a romantic story between two men or it can be actually two women, which is called um, uh, girls love now. So mm -hmm. in, in opposition to boys' love. So now, I mean, it was mostly between men, but now I see, I mean, it was always there, but it's getting more visible. I mean, making homoerotic relationship between two women. Mm. So basically what this culture is, fans or just ordinary media consumers making up a romantic or erotic story between two people or more, two or more people of same sex. That would be the simple definition. Does it happen? This might be a really pointless question, but for example, you could imagine that somebody would write uh, a fanfic about a, uh, a homosexual relationship between two members of Shiny or or stray kids does it happen across groups or things like that do they get like a member of bts and they get like i don't know jin and then temin and then mm -hmm. i don't know Lee byung Yun from the acting thing does it spread across mediums or is it only in particular groups that is not uncommon but it's not common <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah so yeah. there are some attempts to make cross Border, I mean, cross the media or cross either group, mm. uh, love stories, mm. but it's it's not popular because the reason why I would make a fanfic story is that I love this particular group mm. and I want to consume more materials about them. So okay. if I love BTS, why would I make a story between BTS and another group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's happening. If I love BTS and Stray Kids, I can try. And there are people who do that. But mm. that's not majority of how 
fanfic is be, how fanfic is written and consumed. Does it have a, a a long history fanfic? I mean, when do we find it going back to? I have two questions. One in in this kind of Asian context, whether it's with J-pop or K-pop. How far back does fanfic go, and was it also happening with things like Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys and things like that? Did uh, did they get Justin Timberlake and the other guys and write stories about them kissing? And, and I... yeah, I believe there there are I mean, there were about Justin Timberlake and the okay. other member kissing each other. So it has a long three. Um, in Japan, which is considered the birthplace of BL. Okay. They start, I mean, uh, they started making romantic love stories of manga characters in, in mid or late 70s. That's when they started. And probably before they tried it, but it's not historically recorded. So there was this manga magazine named June. So they first publicized hmm. Yaoi manga about two male characters loving each other. And then there was a lot of fan-made magazines, which is called Donginji or in Korea and in Japan is Dojinji. Hmm in which fans made love stories between two male characters. So that's how it started in Japan. And after that, it would spread to all over the places, like, of course, TV character, TV show characters and idol members. Mm. So that culture, I mean, the materials that Japanese fans are boys love. I mean, at the time, yaoi, but now BL, boys love is, um, is used as an umbrella term to indicate yaoi and fanfic and all kinds of this uh, same-sex media, fan-made media materials, or commercially, not, not even commercially uh, created materials. And then Korean people who love the Japanese pop culture at the moment, especially women who uh, liked uh, manga mm. started consuming the fan-made magazines or commercially uh, published magazines from Japan and then they realized that they could do it as well. So in the 80s, Korean people and Korean fans of boys love started having their own magazine, commercial magazines and own uh, fan-made magazines. So in Japan, 70s, and in Korea, 80s. That's the kind of starting point. And then in Western cultures, you have slash culture, which started from uh, Star Trek, <laughs> Kirk and Spock. Yeah, I, I was never a Star Trek. I, it's in Sherlock, though, I guess you get elements of that. Um, I, I wonder, as you describe it, Jongmin, I'm... I, I don't know if I'm being too Gramsci in here, but this kind of BL, this boys love fiction, it starts from fans creating, taking this kind of IP, taking these idols, these celebrities, making their own stories, creating their own um, worlds in which they are the controllers. Is it now being adopted by the entertainment companies? Are they now using those ideas in like... 
I see what might be considered a lot of queer baiting in K-pop. I see the stars mm -hmm. doing a lot of these performances, passing paper between their mouths, between same-sex members. And is it something that was from the fans, by the fans, but now the companies have adopted and kind of sell back to the fans? Or is that an incorrect way of looking at it? Very correct. It has been happening since... Um, the early 2000s, especially by SM Entertainment, who is always keen to look for more materials to sell. Mm -hmm. So there was a rumor that this is a, just a rumor. So yeah, I mean, you can still publicize this, but yes. make it clear this is a rumor. The CEO of SM Entertainment, Lee Soo Man, mm. um, I, I mean, according to fans, Lee Soo Man kind of encouraged two members of HOT, Kang Ta and Moon Hee Jin, mm. to date in, I mean, near the Han River, so that they can could be spotted by fans and who could write fanfic about two male members of HOT. So this rumor demonstrates how the industry was passionate to observe mm. fan cultures. So SM Entertainment even held two fanfic contests. They didn't accept same-sex themed fan fictions, but they knew that it was really easy to convert mm. one of the protagonists to a woman character. So a lot of the script that they uh, received were dramatized by, I forgot the show, but there was this show uh, in which Tong Bang Sin Gi mm -hmm. appeared. I forgot the show. It was, yes, it happened in the mid 2000s. So ever since that, all the entertainment companies are eager to embrace such fan cultures and sell it back. I mean, as you mentioned, um, the queer baiting performances are called P Gepa, business yeah. gay performance. That's a really good example. And idols themselves know that, even though they hate the per such performance, but they know that that could work to increase their popularity. Mm. But some idols like BTS hate <laughs> such performances and they they do not like fanfic culture at all. So it depends. Mm. And if if you kind of say that you don't like those performances, you could face a backlash. You're like you're saying, "What's well, what's wrong with those?" Kind. It's a maybe a damned if you do, damned if you don't. I get the feeling, Jungmin, that HOT was your group growing up, listening to yeah. you speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. HOT is the reason how I am here. <laughs> I. I, I won't ask you right now, but I'm going to think, I wonder if Jungmin ever wrote fanfic about HOT. <laughs> Let's, um, I, I want to go on to this Quinnus because um, we talked about soft masculinity, perhaps muffling other elements inside K-pop. And so we've mm -hmm. explored fanfic a bit. Now, in, in some of your research, you've coined this term, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Is it, is it K-queerness or just queer? Is there a pronunciation, <laughs> Jungmin? It looks so good. Thank you. I read it as large K queerness. Is that how we should but say it? it? Large matter. K you queerness? Can just say queerness. Yeah, yeah. I, I read it as large K queerness. I'm not sure if this is a perfect word. Some people suggested that K queerness, but it's 
too trendy, like K food, K beauty,、mm-hmm. and K pop, K drama, and I I didn't want to <laughs> resort to that trendy culture. So I came up with mine, but this doesn't speak to. Many readers, so I will say. I and and by the way, I'll put some for those listening. I'll put some of Jungmin's research below, so you can go and、uh, find some of it. But、um, looking at this、uh, this queerness idea, you've you've said this in some of your research. The aesthetics, imaginations, practices, performances, and ideas of K-pop players, including performers, industry workers, and fans that have the potential. To disrupt the cishet patriarchal structures of K-pop and create a liberatory space with their unruly, deviant, anti-hegemonic, disturbing, and fluid qualities. So, K-queerness, Jongmin. How can we understand it? And now I see what I wrote, and I. Find it really complicating. <laughs> <laughs> That's why let's talk about it. So I I, I kind of get it. I I do, but、um, it's in academic language. Right, right. So yeah, it's. But I, I can see that it's hard to understand. So, in a nutshell, large K queerness is any anti-hegemonic practices that. K-pop artists do in the popular culture areas. So it can be、um, crossing the border between genders,、mm-hmm. like what Amber and G Dragon do, or it can be closure to queer expressions, like.、Um, Mimicking drag queen or drag king fashion items, or collaborating with them, so anything that we were unable to observe earlier, and、mm-hmm. anything that can help us envision something different, I consider this all kinds of this trials. As、mm-hmm. queerness, so it's a really broad concept.、Mm-hmm. So there is a reason why I make it really、um, general because I want to include and admit all the possibilities. Because there is no clear boundary about what queer is and what、uh, genderless is and what anti-hegemony is. So I want to expand the territory. Mm. So that we could embrace all kinds of possibilities, and then we constantly talk about it.、Mm-hmm. What is queer? What is not queer? What is straight? Then what is women? What is male? So I I I think we need this conversation a lot. I mean, even though there are a lot of gender、uh, debates and、um, gender issues, but this is something we are lacking, I believe.、Mm-hmm. So. By intentionally making a bit broader and then too general, I want to make people think about it. So, what is queerness,、mm. and what does she mean by queerness? What does she mean by disturbing, deviant, and unruly? So, my goal is just have people talk about it. <laughs> 
it's no no i agree and and i i hope that's what we can do now and and talk about it and this i guess it's only just because hearing you talk um speak about these words unruly and deviant it only kind of works in terms of their performances rather than their personal lives i guess because we often read or Western performers will, Adele will write about her divorce and, you know, other people will write about their, their physical and emotional relationships with other people. But that's not something that happens in, um, in K-pop as much. That might be changing, but to date, the idea of a personal relationship for a star is kind of a bit not done. So this large K-queerness is largely performative rather than personal. Is there a how do you see that, Jongmin? Both. So in my paper, I, I believe you already know this based on the paper that I read. So I use, um, I'm not sure if it's appropriate to discuss academic. Right? Absolutely. Please, yeah, yeah. Do, okay. Discuss what you want. Yeah. So the, I used Judith Butler's. Um, idea about gender performativity. So, FYI, I mean to the listeners, Judith Butler is one of the well-known and important queer theorists in the world. And uh, she wrote in um, several of her pieces that gender is performative, meaning that there is no clear concept of what a woman is and what a man is. So she kind of tries to disrupt all the boundaries regarding gender. And then there she emphasizes that that perf performativity is not one-time performance. It should be based on your authentic authenticity mm. and it should be based on your daily life. It's something that you do not show. It's something that you like naturally express, not intentionally. I mean, just instinctly. So that's what she argued in her uh, pieces, which I totally agree. But I thought the Korean case is probably the East Asian case is different because we have different cultures mm -hmm. in which we cannot naturally and unconsciously share who we are and then mm -hmm. what we want. So I thought acknowledging one-time performance or acknowledging just presentation of fabricated queerness is still important mm -hmm. in South Korean society, which is very conservative, which is not accepting any kind of queerness. So I kind of re-theorized and reformulated Judith Butler's idea about gender performativity in a way to make it uh, better uh, situated for the South Korean case. Mm. So based on that, in K-pop spaces, one-time performance or just personal queerness or any kind of queerness, I believe should be recognized and acknowledged as large K queerness because if we silence performative, I mean, just showing, presenting queerness, 
we wouldn't be able to find any. Mm. For example, G Dragon may look like he's not queer at all. If we look into his personal life, he's totally a heterosexual man, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Constantly dating a traditionally beautiful woman. But when we focus on other aspects of his star celebrity identity, we can find queerness. Yeah. And I think that should be observed and they should be discussed in a way to contribute making K-pop more diverse. So I think if, if one can show who's personal queerness in K-pop, that would be fantastic, but which I do not think will be possible in the near future. So mm -hmm. for now, I think, that, okay, let's make this K-pop sphere diverse and more colorful as much as we can. So why don't we just accept any kind of non-straightness, any kind of non-traditional aspects that we could not consume mm. previously. So that's the starting point of queerness, making it broader and then making it embracing just probably uh, made of queerness. Mm -hmm. One of my previous guests, Haley, Haley Yang, I believe, uh, a reporter, she described G-Dragon as the OG genderbender, which I thought was a nice way of describing mm -hmm. him. There yes, is a, definitely he's a genderbender. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he definitely did do that with his appearances, despite having, as you say, you know, all those personal relationships, mm -hmm. heterosexual relationships. But he had that mm -hmm. expression, that performance, that performative nature which you've used with um, Judith Butler's theoretical framework. I, there is, I, I've noticed some still some, some reluctance to do this that comes from mainstream or television broadcasters in South Korea, how they will sort of cut out certain lines or scenes from shows and, and songs. Um, but what I want to ask you now, Jungmin, is this large K queerness that we see um, as performative in, in K-pop. And I, I'm pretty sure your answer to this is going to be both, but this large K-queerness that we observe in K-pop, is it reflective of Korean social change? Is it showing us that Korean society is changing? And so now therefore we can see elements of queerness in the K-pop or is it representative of international demand, international fans in the West or whether it's fanfic in the East, whether it's the progressive attitudes that come out the West who sort of want this? Is what is producing or what are the catalysts for the increased presence of large K queerness in K-pop? Domestic, international, both? <laughs> You know the answer already. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand why you're asking the question. Okay. K-pop was not K-pop did not start to cater to transnational consumers in the mm -hmm. beginning. Mm -hmm. It was for domestic market for sure. And I mean I'm I, I believe that the entertainment companies would want to reach out to 
uh, transnational audiences as I mean in the future, but it was not their initial goal. Mm, right. So in the beginning, they just wanted to create something new, like in a position to traditional Korean music culture, like trot or a more art artist artisty uh, singers like Shin Seung-hoon or I mean all the uh, classical ballad singers but in the mid 90s the entertainment company wanted to do something else mm. but at the moment it was obviously domestic audiences that they wanted to target so they started with um, catering to domestic audiences first, and their uh, K-pop groups definitely reflected the desires of K um, uh, desires of Korean audiences first. And then the Korean audiences, um, more specifically, straight female fans of mm. K-pop were already queer because they have been consuming gay romance. I know, I mean, the, this culture is harshly criticized for being heteronormative and being abusing gay culture. But at the same time, I still consider it queer because straight women consuming gay romance and they go for gay culture. So, I mean, there are, I mean, it's debatable, but I focus on this um kind of revolutionary aspect of the fan culture i'm in this uh, side i own this side mm -hmm. so luckily the korean media uh, korean media or korean music industry was able to see uh, queer components and they could improve, uh, they could uh, develop it more by embracing female fans of uh, fanfic culture for queer desires and I think in the way the K-pop industry was getting gradually ready for transnational audiences who are more mm. open-minded toward queer cultures so now obviously they are I mean the K-pop industry is being impacted by transnational audiences. For example, I can see that BTS is getting more and more politically correct because they know that transnational, I mean, transnational music consumers and their fans, millennials and generation Zers are more uh, cautious of identity politics. Yep. So I see that BTS is getting more and more progressive in the beginning, their song was attacked for being misogynistic. Mm. But now, they, when they had the UN address, I've, they, they made a public statement at the UN assembly. Mm -hmm. They said that regardless of gender and race or anything, we should stand up. So by mentioning gender, this identity politics, mm. they demonstrated they take care of minority people they take care of minority fans so this proves that they are definitely in, influenced by transnational fans mm. who are more um, 
differs in terms of gender, sexuality, and race, and other physical identity markers. Or identity markers, and not only physical. Sure, no, I, I completely get that. And I think, you know, regardless of how or why it happens, I think that K-pop is having a, an impact on people's sexual identity and not just BTS, but around the world that that seems to be happening. It seems to be having a, a positive effect outside of the music. I think people seem to be looking at it, mm -hmm. many people and find it liberating or they're finding comfort in it. They're finding acceptance. They're finding representation, which, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps it's not always there. It might be sort of put in there subjectively from the audience perspective, or it might be sort of mm -hmm. this kind of fan fiction, but it, it's definitely happening and hopefully, it, you know, it, it helps people come to terms with being themselves and being accepted for who they are. I would be a little bit cautious about impacting their fans mm -hmm. because it has this nuance that there is one way influence from the celebrity to fans. I would say that these K-pop groups are trying to meet the standard of diverse fans mm. and probably some of them some of the fans are influenced but not all of them are always i mean there are still fans who are oh. anti-queer mm -hmm. there are yeah. still fans who wouldn't like um, bts's progressive movement that they have been making recently. Mm. So I would so I think the word impact is a little bit strong. So I would say that uh, they are more conscious of this uh, identity politics and some fans read it and then they uh, consume it that way, but others do not care. <laughs> uh, uh, no, that's a really important point because, yeah, K-pop fans are not monolith. Just very quickly on that, because that can be a very difficult one. Mm -hmm. How do we understand K-pop fans? Because that, that's one of the things that we haven't touched on yet. And, and you've mm -hmm. just brought up that some will respond positively, some will respond negatively to these um, progressive ideas and these issues of identity and gender. Now, you know, fandom is such a huge part of K-pop and it, it's portrayed positively and negatively in the mainstream media. Um, but it seems to be pretty global. When I, when I do my Hallyu classes and things like that, there's people from all over, genuinely, uh, with all different uh, backgrounds, political ideologies, religions, and, you know, they're all interested in K-pop. So it's kind of hard to understand who k-pop fans are because it's so wide how do you understand k-pop fans jongmin how do we address that it the k the word k-pop fan is too small for everything that it encompasses isn't it it's it's hard to answer <laughs> the k-pop fan body is rapidly getting diverse as you can see i for example earlier i mentioned that i live in a neighborhood in which a lot of asian people live mm. one day i was taking a walk and i could hear some loud music sound and i was like who is this this is too 
to I mean to troubling because I wanted to enjoy that moment and the music was getting louder and then louder and then louder and then there was this woman uh, seemingly from India because she was wearing the traditional Indian uh, costume and then she looked like in her mid 50s or late 50s mm. and she was holding her phone and listening to Butter by BTS <laughs> <laughs> and then that's the moment I realized okay it's not just youngsters it's not mm. only millennials and gen zers but also all kinds of people that i couldn't even imagine mm. so it can be some people from south america or it can from alaska or it yeah. could from africa it could from malaysia and it can be like my grandfather generation it can it can be um uh, probably white straight man probably would love BTS. It's not limited at this moment. Right. So and it looks like a BTS represents K-pop. It is very true, but the fandom is the the singers that these K-pop fans follow also very diverse are very diverse. Mm. So yeah. for example, in Portland, I have a friend who likes folk songs uh, from 80s in South Korea. Mm -hmm. At the time, we had a lot of democratic uprisings. And at the moment, there were this certain group of singers who um, uh, released uh, this genre of folk songs. Yep. And my friend loved that genre. So wow. it's not just current K-pop. And she enjoys uh, songs by Kim Chuja, the 70s, 80s singers. Mm -hmm. And then recently there was a music performance by Fusion band from South Korea who uh, combined K-pop type of songs with traditional Korean music, Kuga. Yep. So I forgot their band's name, but Yinang they had Chi a perf have been doing that. No, no, then, then I would know if it were okay. uh, Inaichi. So I had to Google because it was not familiar. So this mm. means that even not a very popular non-K-pop band could have a performance in Portland, which is not a big city in the U.S., not New York, not mm. Chicago, but they the show was successful. So it's... Uh, now, yeah, everything is unthinkable and unimaginable regarding how we could define the fan body and how we could um, uh, think of the range of how much K-pop is being consumed. Mm. So how I think about K-pop fans, limitless. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to be very patriotic because mm -hmm. I see that this will wither, this would wither at some moment, just like Hong Kong cinema and then Japanese pop culture mm. that was, that kind of swept the world in the uh, 80s and 90s. But now, 
yeah, we are like, where's where are Hong Kong movies and where mm-hmm. are all the Japanese uh, idols who are m- much more popular than K-pop singers at the mm-hmm. moment? So one day this will all go away, and probably we will see a lot of Chinese pop bands or a lot of Taiwan, yep. uh, not Taiwan, Thailand pop bands, which has a huge uh, pop culture industry. So for a moment, I just want to enjoy this because this will not go forever. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you're absolutely right to enjoy it. And and I completely agree with you that it's real, it's global, it's all around the world. And sometimes people can get a little bit caught up on sort of the BTS phenomenon, but that's often just the tip of the iceberg that people are heavily invested into you know the dramas the movies many other bands many other genres of music and exactly you know, we we live kind of a bit in a hipster culture i think there's always been that but you want to go deeper and deeper into this kind of Hallyu thing and mm-hmm. test people do you know this do you know this so mm-hmm. yeah i i will be supporting it as well while it continues um jongmin is there anything else i perhaps we'll kind of bring this to a close here is there anything else do you think that we need to cover or that you want to address before we finish this up um about the popular the current um distribution of korean pop culture including k-pop cinema and food or beauty i mean i i definitely like it (laughs) i am enjoying it and i feel proud i'm and it is amazing that a lot of people ask me about my culture mm. it is i'm very blessed to teach my own culture to students in this country which was unthinkable a decade ago right but at the same time i want to see some dark sides of k-pop which is probably part of my research about how conservative the societies and how much female is i mean female idols mm. are exploited in the market and then how much uh, labor these young people have to put to um, get the acclaimed so i mean of course this is not their job mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, that's the job that scholars and uh, journalists and activists pay more attention to. But at the same time, I want K-pop fans or K um, fans or audiences of Korean culture keep these issues in mind. They're always not so pleasant aspects. And when they encounter it, mm. I want them to get ready. So K-pop is not always bright <laughs> and then Korean dramas and Korean movies and Korean food and Korean beauty all have surprisingly negative aspects or discouraging uh, point. So hopefully, yeah, all, I mean, transnational consumers are aware of this and then when they face these issues 
they do not start consuming Korean cultures. I hope that that it that could be the chance through which they get to know more about Korean cultures and then Korean society, and then they pursue more. In that sense, mm -hmm. probably, yeah, we can be more uh, culture culturally. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. Fewer career boos, but people with a deeper and, and more nuanced and real understanding of, mm -hmm. I guess, the difference between K-culture and then actual Korean culture, because the exactly. two can be very, very different. Um, I wonder, just to ask your opinion on this while you're here with me, Jungmin, do you think that sometimes the successes of Hallyu can have a negative effect on Korean culture? Because there is a demand for beauty. There is a demand for this kind of representation in, in Korea. I think aesthetics drives a lot of K-pop and, and, and the dramas. And knowing it's becoming more internationally successful, knowing that, you know, it's an export, does this then have a trickle-down effect on beauty standards in the country and gender roles? Or can the success of Hallyu have any sort of bad social effects? Or is uh, do we have to separate the two? Oh, that's... That's a really great question that I haven't thought of. Any um, negative influence on Korean society? We can cover that in episode two if you want. <laughs> um, probably not in a way that you gave me some directions. But the thing that I can think of is that the Korean media industry may want to grab more transnational attentions because that's a bigger market, mm. much bigger market than the small country. So that may discourage them to um take risk in terms of um uh diversity of korean content mm -hmm. that's not happening yet luckily um for example i i mean it's actually working in an opposite way for example with the enormous budget of netflix yeah korean young directors korean young media makers can't uh, be more adventurous that's that that's an absolutely good thing but mm. at some moment i think the opposite can could happen mm. for example because they do not want to fail in a big market so they kind of keep copying bts mm -hmm. or they keep copying the success of um the film Parasite. I think that's what happened with Sai Gangnam Style. In 2012, he made a hit song, Gangnam Style, and then his next song was another version of Gangnam Style because he didn't want to, mm. um, he didn't want to disappoint his transnational fans. So he, his next song was kind of another imitation of Gangnam Style. That's what he admitted later. Yeah. He, uh, acknowledged that he was not adventurous. That may happen, probably, as the K-pop 
as the Korean media industry is getting bigger and bigger and getting more hold in the transnational market, that's actually what's happening with Hollywood. Hollywood's kind of stopped revolutionizing its stories and it keeps producing the same stories again and again. Yeah. Now what yeah. they are doing is that they import transnational film directors from Mexico, like Inaritu or um, Alfonso Cuaro. And now they are offering chances to Korean directors mm -hmm. through which local directors are taking advantage of. So for now, it's good. But at the moment, probably we do the same thing as Hollywood. So that's my only concern that I have. Mm. So I know this is not the way that you want it to get an answer. No, but it's... Like gender or aesthetics. No, no, but it's right because I feel that Hollywood, a lot of that has stagnated, mm -hmm. that there isn't much change or revolution, but mm -hmm. it seems that there still is in a lot of K-pop, that there, there is still that kind of schizophrenic genre-bending creation. And with the dramas and movies, you have auteurs like Bong Juno, mm -hmm. but then you have this deep webtoons thing, which is where... Right. Uh, a lot of the content seems to be coming from whether it's Itaewon mm -hmm. Class or Squid Game or, or mm -hmm. Sweet Home. That's this kind of un, what would you call it? Um, underutilized resource that they still have to run exactly. dry. And it will run dry maybe eventually, but the, the webtoons <laughs> are, are a good source for it. So I hope it continues. Mm -hmm. There's got to be risks. There's got to be, there's got to be those. Um, Jongmin, this let's let's kind of stop it there. I think that this is uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, responding to your fantastic questions. They made me think a lot. As I, I mean, while I was talking. Mm. No, it, it genuinely. I like I say, I I learned a lot, and I I made sure to listen to you, and you know. Uh, understand what you were saying and hopefully try to turn it into a dialectic you know where we, we mm -hmm. talk to each other and take the conversation somewhere so mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time 